This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. Welcome to part two of our interview today with Dr. John Abramowitz. In case you missed the first episode, Dr. John Abramowitz is a world-renowned clinical psychologist and professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of North Carolina in America. John specializes in the treatment of OCD and other related disorders and has done so for the past 25 years. During this time, he has conducted several research trials leading to over 300 scientific publications. He trains clinical psychology students, has worked with a countless number of people with OCD, and has authored several books, including the newest edition of Getting Over OCD, a 10-step workbook for taking back your life, and book chapters. In the second part of our conversation with John, you'll hear him talk about how to integrate the inhibitory learning model into clinical practice and the importance of consistency when doing so. You'll also hear him talk about how hard it is for him to know that he can't take the first edition of his book out of circulation. Let's get started. What are some examples of applying the inhibitory learning model to exposure therapy? Is it something that we would do across all different types of exposures? Would you do it little bit by little bit? Like what's the jam? First, let me say that I do not believe that everyone should like just stop worrying about habituation and start doing inhibitory learning. There is a place for habituation because I think people can learn, hey, my anxiety does go down and that's nice. Like certainly we would prefer that. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But there are times when we always want to be on the lookout for patients using habituation as almost like a ritual. And so when they're doing that, then we want to start to reframe exposure. But I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing inhibitory learning exposures. It's just that we don't have to use that. It's not like everyone should drop habituation. We've gotten a long way with habituation. But okay, so what do we want to do? What we do is instead of asking like, what's your suds? What's your suds every five minutes, right? And hoping that, okay, it's 40, you know, now it's 30. Okay, woo, we're doing okay. Instead, we want to build exposures around trying to test out some sort of prediction. So we're doing exposure to uh, some sort of intrusive thought. The patient is going to think about what if I'm a child molester and they're going to write a story about molesting a kid or something like that. That's the exposure. Again, instead of what's your suds now, what's your suds now, I'm going to elicit before the exposure, like, okay, so when you do this, like, what's the worst part about this for you? What's going to happen? Oh, I'm going to have that uncertainty. I'm not going to know. I'm going to feel like I need to get reassurance. I'm going to have to do a ritual or ask someone or test myself to make sure I'm not aroused. Okay. How long do you think you can go in this situation 
without doing those things. Oh, five minutes. I don't think I could last more than five minutes without testing to make sure I'm not really attracted to a child that I'm really not getting aroused by writing this. Okay. What would that ritual look like? Well, I would kind of have to think through mentally and try to imagine an adult and all this kind of stuff. Okay. Let's try to do this exposure and let's see if we can go for five minutes and try to have you hold off doing those rituals. So we do the exposure. Five minutes goes by. Okay. So were you able to do it? Yeah. I was able to do it. Wow. So you went five minutes and you were unsure about whether you're a child molester. You think you do it for another five? Oh, yeah, yeah, I can do it for another five. Sure, that wasn't as bad as I thought. So 10 minutes later, oh, look, 10 minutes, you've done this. You don't want to try it for another five minutes. And after a while, you've got the person for a half hour, they're doing the exposure, and they haven't done the rituals for 30 minutes. And you can say to them, gee, what did you get out of that? Well, I thought I could only do it for five minutes, and I did it for 30. And that's inhibitory learning because you're focusing on that belief change. Exposure therapy is the best form of cognitive therapy. It's a cognitive intervention. It's behavioral because we're actually doing something, be changing behavior, but it's cognitive because we're changing cognitions. And then we're going to talk about, well, gee, you know, so that surprised you? Yeah, I was really surprised. I thought I wouldn't be able to go for five minutes to doing that. And you can use that also with, have you gotten sick? Have the police shown up at your door after you drove around and didn't check that you hit somebody? So you're testing out these fear predictions, and you are disconfirming them stepwise, little by little, to help the person to see, you know what, I can do this. I'm better at this than I thought. And you see how that's different than just focusing on suds. Here you're helping the person surprise themselves, which we know from research helps with learning. It's a form of building evidence. It's a different way of evidence testing. Without doing the actual in-the-moment cognitive work, you're kind of dealing with the emotional aspect first, letting that sort itself out, I guess, and then doing the cognitive work afterwards, which is a really neat way of doing what you need to do to help build those new neural pathways. You know what? I love that. You're doing the emotional work first. I've never thought about it that way, but that's right. You're teaching them to be able to manage emotions and they're learning something in the process. And then, right, you're doing that cognitive restructuring rather than doing it before or during the exposure, which sometimes patients end up using as a ritual. The evidence says that, right? That's like doing a ritual with the patient. Now you're doing it after you're helping them to process what happened, reinforce that change in belief. Oh, you predicted this, but what did the evidence show you? What would happen if we tried this again? What would happen if we tried this with a slightly different stimulus? And that gets to another inhibitory learning strategy, which is varying up the stimuli. If I'm afraid of large dogs, like a Great Dane or something, and I'm always doing exposure to a poodle, I'm not going to learn to get over my fear, right? I need to have different dogs, some bigger, some smaller, some louder, some not as loud, some that jump up on you and some that just kind of don't. And that helps with safety learning when we vary up the context. So that's another part of it as well, is kind of changing the stimulus with a therapist, without a therapist, at daytime, nighttime, all sorts of contexts. We learn to be afraid and it's context independent. If I'm afraid of dogs, I'm afraid of any dog, but learn safety depends on the context. It's interesting what you're saying because one of the things we wanted to ask about is In our role as supervisors, we often hear practitioners asking us about 
the hierarchies and about how important it is to work in a really linear fashion and to move from the mild to moderate to severe. And Celine and I, I think through our experience, but also I think we're fairly creative and playful therapists. I think we lend probably more to a more creative strategy than that. Creative, but still evidence-based, just in <laughs> case people freak out about that. <laughs> yeah, we're flexible within the model. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But I suppose we're curious about that, about the idea of the exposure menu versus the exposure hierarchy and about how to work within it so that you're not just teaching people to just work in a really sort of inflexible way. It actually generalizes into life. Right, exactly. Because in real life, things don't come on a hierarchy. Once you leave the house, and sometimes not even leaving the house, shit happens, right? <laughs> and we can't control it. So the hierarchy is fine. And again, for 60 years since the development of exposure therapy, people have been using hierarchies and we know that that can be really helpful. But there are some liabilities that you guys touched on. It's not the way things are in real life. Sometimes you set up this expectation if you use a hierarchy that, oh, those items at the top, the worst ones, like I'm not ready for that. That kind of anxiety, that's worse than just kind of medium anxiety, which is not true. Anxiety is anxiety and it's unpleasant, but it's not any more dangerous. And so jumping around, if you want to do it based on what interferes most with quality of life, what's the most practical, what's coming up the most for the person. I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to do it. And there is actually evidence that you can jump around and it doesn't make a difference. I think the most important thing is that the person's doing exposure. And if you have to go gradually to get them to engage, then that's more important than saying, no, we got to be random about it. And if you don't like that, then get out of here. Much better to, to do it gradually. So it's driven by the patient, I think. You're not wrong with clients wanting to use that as a reason to say, I'm not ready for that. As we see that a lot with young people, especially when they're like, my mom doesn't understand or my parents don't understand. I'm not ready for that exposure yet. And they just want to stop reassuring me. They don't get it. And it's like, well, actually you can cope with this kiddo. Like it's going to be okay. <laughs> I think also some of the young people that I work with also talk about how their motivation and their self-belief waxes and wanes. And so they on the days when they feel really charged up, they want to go for it and they seek permission to be able to, and so I hope I'm not rushing. I hope this is okay. Then what can happen is that they can give themselves a really hard time when they have a day when exposure was hard and they only achieved a little, especially the perfectionists, the anxious perfectionists struggle with feeling like they haven't achieved enough because they only chose something small and gentle because they're having a rough time. And I think that flexibility even is so essential alongside self-compassion. That's the art of the therapy, right? There's the, there's the science, lots of science behind exposure and response prevention, but there's also the art of doing it. That's your clinical skill. We can't deny that. You mentioned something that I think also deserves some more discussion, which is sometimes patients will say, I was just having a really stressful week. And so I just couldn't handle doing exposure. So I took the week off. No, <laughs> that's the best time yeah. to do exposure, right? Anyone can do exposure when it's a bright, sunny day <laughs> and there's no stress. The gains, the hard work and the improvement comes when you're doing it when you didn't think you could do it in a nice way. That's what I tell patients. Oh, this would have been a great opportunity we want to root for stressful times so you can do exposure and see that even a stressful day doesn't have to get in the way of learning new information. 
And I think having a structured hierarchy can really feed into the idea of I can't do this because I'm too stressed today because this is the hard task. This is a hard trigger for me as well. And I think us as clinicians can fall into that trap too of giving clients a get out of jail free card because it triggers our empathy and our want to be understanding and validating and all that sort of stuff as well as also kind of falling into that idea of, oh no, this is on the top of their hierarchy. They're not going to be able to cope with this because then we're sending the same message. Oh no, you can't cope with that. I think that's a big problem. Even for therapists that have been trained in exposure therapy, there's research showing that they sometimes have trouble pushing folks. From time to time, we all do. I, I don't consider myself a softy, but there are times when when I've given pay, oh, okay, yeah, I guess that was a rough time. Let's give them a break. We need to watch that, but inevitably that, those kinds of things are going to happen. And I think that's where I really like where ACT comes in because I love that idea that, yeah, you know, it's a hard day, but these are the moments to be filling your day with things that actually make you feel good, that enrich your life and not letting OCD kind of stand in your way. These are the moments you actually need those things. And that's when you've got to fight for that, for your right to have the things that bring you joy, that bring you pleasure into your day, because that's when you need them the most. And that's when you're likely to do those things the least. And so that's what this fight is all about. I think where ACT has such value in this work. The other thing, just backing onto what you were saying before, Celine, is also one of the challenges with hierarchy is when clients list everything on their hierarchy as being (laughs) severe, like 100 out of 100. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, see, I've got nowhere to start. I've got nowhere to start. I can't start because everything is too hard. And so that then I think actually we become a bit hamstrung. That format, I think actually we set ourselves up to make it very difficult to actually begin if the premise was we're going to start with the mild one. So see, I don't have a mild one. So where am I supposed to start? I can't do this. I'm not ready. It does feed into that, doesn't it? So really what we've been talking about is how to be creative using with exposure, really, and to challenge the way we've been doing things in different ways, but to have room for all of it and not just to be one or the other or black and white about habituation versus inhibitory learning and all the rest of it. It's another weapon in your arsenal, I guess. How important is consistency? We harp on about consistency all the time because for us, a lot of the time with our clients, we like to bring in a little bit of the neuroscience in terms of just teaching in psychoed about teaching clients about how the brain works and how brain pathways work and how fear works and all that sort of stuff. And I think our clients really take to that and feel like there's actually something they can do. They feel really empowered by it. So we talk about exposure needing to be consistent, I think pretty much in every session. I think we basically tattoo it on our client's brain. Yeah. As you're saying before, even on the hard days, you've got to keep going. You've got to bring it in. You've got to find an opportunity. You've got to create an opportunity. Do you find that consistency is important when doing this sort of work? Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, not only in the session, but they got to be practicing in between sessions. I tell folks that you don't have to be a hundred percent, but pretty darn close of practicing, you know, daily and taking advantage of opportunities that arise just during your life. And the analogy that I like to make is, I stole this from the exercise literature. When I was on internship, I did a rotation where we were working with folks that were having that bariatric surgery and they had to do behavioral therapy first. 
And one of the things we taught them was you could do programmed exercise where you go to the gym for an hour and you do all the stuff that's prescribed. And then there's lifestyle exercise, which is like deliberately taking the steps or park at the far end of the parking lot. So you walk to the mall and things like that. And exposure, I think, is the same way. There's the exercises that the therapist prescribes for you to do, suggests that you do. And then there's also taking advantage, being opportunistic of things that come up in the environment, making good exposure decisions rather than avoidance decisions. And that's pretty much like 24-7 job. And I've heard you talk about it as being really, really important for maintenance as well. So not just the active stage of treatment, but that's one of the really key components of maintaining the gains that you get from therapy. Definitely. And people say, well, you know, when can I stop doing exposure? But I think that eventually it just becomes part of your life that you're just confronting stuff because it's happening to you. It's just more like you're just doing more response prevention. One of the things that clients that are in recovery that will come just for a booster session a year later or whatever, or just to touch base, often say, you know, I'm doing pretty good. Like I still get intrusive thoughts, but I know what it is. I just kind of let it be there. I know what I need to do and then I can get on with my day. That's what it feels like. And I guess that's what it's like for the rest of us when we're also experiencing intrusive thoughts, nowhere near as frequently or as intensely as those with OCD. But at the same time, it's what most of us do when, yeah, those pesky intrusive thoughts pop into our heads. And they do. I don't have OCD, but I sure as hell have a lot of thoughts that I wouldn't tell anybody about. And that's just normal. That's just what we all, welcome to the club. Well, we thought we'd ask about that because we ask all of our guests just to normalize it. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lovely segue that you just did for us there. I get to talk about my intrusive thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) We ask our guests if they would be willing to share an intrusive thought that they have. I'll share two that come up a lot. One is, so my parents are older now. My dad got gray hair and everything. And whenever I'm visiting them and my Mom says, here, John, pour wine for everybody. So I walk around the table and I'm pouring. I have a big family. I get this thought. What if I took the wine bottle, grabbed it by the neck and just bashed it over my dad's head from behind? What? I love my dad. Like what a horrible, hopefully he won't listen to this because I've never told him that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Don't send him the link. (laughs) Right. And it's because I love him. That's the last thing I would want to do. The other is I have two daughters. They're older now. They're in college. And from the time that they were babies, giving them baths, changing them, sexual thought. And now they're attractive young ladies and they walk around in their underwear in my house. Of course, I'm going to have sexual thoughts. I'm not into incest. I'm not into, they're over 18. So I guess it wouldn't be child molestation, but I certainly had those thoughts when they were 16. And because I'm a human, I'm a male and I, (laughs) a heterosexual male, I'm going to think about those things. I remember having thoughts about my nephews when they were born, especially the first nephew, as an auntie changing his nappy for the first time, having thoughts about like pulling on his penis or like doing some others, like whatever else it might be, pops into the head when you're bathing them, et cetera. And a lot of parents do talk about experiencing these thoughts and it can feel so shameful. And I think at that time when my nephew was born, that was when I started working in patient program. And I kept thinking to myself, this is what it's like for a new mom every single day when she develops OCD. And if I had no idea what was going on, you can easily see because of the shame, how that would easily tip over into full-blown disorder. Some of my research has been on postpartum OCD. And 
I got the idea to study that and experience very similar. I was two o'clock in the morning. My firstborn was like two weeks old. My wife and I would take turns getting up to give her a bottle. What do you do after you give a baby a bottle? You get a burp, right? I'm sitting there and it's just us. I'm half asleep. And the thought goes through my head, what if you pounded the shit out of her? <laughs> it's like not much bigger than my hand. And me being a nerd, I thought to myself, oh, if I had OCD, this would be one of those thoughts that I would like start to get really anxious about. And I can't feed the baby anymore. I'm a dangerous person. And instead, I asked a good friend of mine and colleague, a psychiatrist who also had a new baby. She's told me that she had thoughts about dropping like a pencil in the baby's uh, soft spot. We did a bunch of studies on it and found that most parents, like you were saying, have these kinds of thoughts. It's entirely normal. And it's only when you misappraise them as significant and take them literally and start to act against them. That's when you develop all sorts of OCD problems. Like you guys, I get them too about my daughters and they don't stop. And even with the luxury of understanding what they are and having such a framework, I still find them disturbing. I still find them incredibly unpleasant. I still have quick thoughts about judgments, about what it means that I'm having this, which I'm able to sit with and tolerate and work with. And that is with the advantage of actually even having the insight knowing what it is. It's really, really difficult. It's really understandable how OCD evolves. It's really understandable. The last question that we'll ask is just something you know now that you wish you'd known earlier in your career. Probably I would say over the last 10 years or so, I've learned about the acceptance model, I would say. So for a long time, I was all in on cognitive therapy and I still am all in 110% on therapy, but I was all in on that as the only way. Like we need to change these illogical, you know, I was trained by a guy that was an Albert Ellis disciple. And I was all in. And this acceptance stuff, it took me a while to kind of come around and working with, I mentioned Mike Tuhig's name before, but one of my grad students one day was like, you know, I don't understand. There was a paper that Mike published, ACT worked for OCD, and we didn't understand how that could work because they didn't do exposure therapy. So we sent him an email. Hey, let's have a conference call. Let's talk about this. And we ended up becoming good friends and collaborating. And that was more than 10 years ago. And I really started to become more open to acceptance models. I wish that I had understood that 10, 20 years ago. There are a lot of people that I probably could have helped in my clinical work even more than my success rate would have been higher if I had understood that. I must confess, I share that too, that I wish that I'd been taught it or come across it earlier. And I don't know that that was just the training that I had or my exposure or you know what my supervisors were working with, but you can't go back in time, can you? But I agree. Because I think back to some of that earlier work that I did, and I think, oh, I could have been more effective. I wasn't sure I was good enough, but I just think, oh. When I look at some of the stuff that I wrote 10, 15 years ago, I want to like get rid of like <laughs> take all the, the books that people bought, like, no, send them back. Send them back. <laughs> I wrote a, a workbook called Getting Over OCD. And the second edition just came out a couple of years ago. The first edition was all about habituation. You got to do habituation. You got to make that anxiety go away. Do this cognitive restructuring stuff. And then they came back and said, you know, would you like to do a second edition? Like, yes, we <laughs> do that. And yeah. like, I wish I could just like press a button and make all of the <laughs> first edition version like spontaneously disappear. But, uh, but isn't that the nature of science? That's evolution. Exactly. And I wonder if without doing all of that work and being immersed in habituation and seeing the challenges of that, 
whether the inhibitory model and the and acceptance would have been so well understood or, you know, like I think we've got to go through that journey in order to arrive at the next stage. Absolutely. And as we've seen in some fields that are still working with the same antidepressants that they've been working with since the 1970s, other fields don't necessarily look and adapt and change the way that our cognitive behavioral field has. We've been very lucky to, because really, if you think about it, a lot of the stuff from ACT, it really is exposure. You're asking people to just really open up. That's exposing themselves to all those uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. I'd love to come back and talk about the overlaps between ACT and exposure. Oh, we'd love to have okay. you back. <laughs> <laughs> the ACT, the real strong like ACT proponents are like, this is new and different, the third wave. Some of the differences and some of the new, for me, ways of thinking about this, but it, it really overlaps a lot with what we're very consistent with what we've been doing. Well, to be continued for our listeners, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> stay tuned for more. Thank you so much for your time. I just feel like we're getting started having this conversation. We'd love to continue it. And we are so grateful for your research and your work. We apply a lot of your work. Hopefully it's nice to know that all the way across the world, there's a whole bunch of not just us, but also other psychologists in Australia that work with OCD, love your work. And it's really lovely to know that it's evolving. There are things that we can do to keep helping our clients to get unstuck. Well, that's nice of you to say, and it gives me a good feeling to know that someone's reading the stuff that we're putting out there. So thanks for that. Maybe not the first edition stuff, but at least the second edition, right? Don't read the first edition. (laughs) Don't read the first edition. (laughs) You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word. That's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break the rules. <laughs>